Major portions of the world are in conflict, and some, in fact, are going to hell. Jesus. I was at the UN. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI 92.9, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on many fine affiliate networks, including among them the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide from the broadcast, though you might like to. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Coming up, we have a very, very busy show. More going on today than we can possibly get to, but we will do our best to get to as many of those things as we can. Coming up, the Republicans in the U.S. Senate are, yes, at it again. The so-called Graham-Cassidy-Heller-Johnson bill would, by all reports, repeal and replace Obamacare pretty much as uh, uh, as previous uh, failed efforts by Republicans in Congress have tried to do so by repealing the Affordable Care Act's premium subsidies and Medicare expansion and replacing them both, in this case, with block grants to states instead with a, a per capita limit. Rather than uh, payments for what is actually needed for health care for the people, uh, depending on their actual needs, this would put a, a hard limit on those payments, no matter what it is, no matter what sort of health care people need. The GOP reportedly does not yet have the 50 votes needed for passage in the U.S. Senate under the rules, allowing them to bypass a filibuster, uh, which would otherwise take 60 votes to end. Uh, but Democrats and uh, healthcare advocates are now sounding an urgent alarm, asking supporters to call their senator to demand a vote against Graham Cassidy. If you'd like to call your U.S. senators and let them know how you feel about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, that phone number to reach your senator, whoever they may be, is 202 202- Two two four three one two one. That's two zero two 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 four three one two one. This is somewhat urgent. This is very urgent because the Senate rules allowing for passage of a replacement bill uh, by just fifty votes 
That rule will expire at the end of this month, after which Republicans would have to come up with 60 votes to repeal and replace Obamacare. But at the same time, as all of that is going on, about a third of the Democrats in the U.S. Senate, including some pretty heavy hitters, have their own plan to replace Obamacare. And that's with a single payer Medicare for all bill, as introduced last week by Bernie Sanders with 16 co-sponsors. We will talk about the political pros and cons, the dangers and the upsides for Democrats of that effort uh, with TPM editor-at-large John Judas shortly. Also a bit later, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report would be here. Yeah, not so yay today, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, Uh, The record hurricanes continue. The uh, Trump's denial of climate change's links to extreme weather continues. The uh, Trump's scheme to reduce national monuments, that continues. And uh, U.N. Global, here's something to yay about. Uh, U.N. Global PACs continue uh, and continue to work on the 30th anniversary of the Montreal Accord that successfully reversed the growth of the hole in the ozone layer to uh, uh, by man-made emissions of CFCs. Is that yes, uh, the, the right uh, way to describe it? The refrigerants and your air conditioner and your refrigerator and your car and all kinds of other industrial applications. Yes, they noticed what was going on. They listened to the scientists. They all got together. They wrote it down. They figured it out. And it's working. And they did something. They got together as a, as a, a, a globe and made an agreement. And it worked. Imagine yeah. that. Uh, They got together at the U.N. Uh, At least the U.N. nations uh, got together to do this, and uh, they are getting together this week at the United Nations General Assembly as leaders from around the globe are taking to the lectern there at the U.N. And this is, of course, a particularly big moment for President Donald Trump, who addressed the world gathering for the very first time on Tuesday in his speech. Trump vowed to, quote, totally destroy North Korea if it threatened the U.S. or its allies. He also called Iran a, quote, rogue nation, said the U.S. was prepared to take further action on Venezuela, whatever that means. He has threatened military action against Venezuela before. President Emmanuel Macron of France countered many of Donald Trump's remarks, even though Macron and uh, uh, Trump have struck off, struck up a a friendship, a broship of sorts. Of sorts. Uh, he he pushed back on those uh, on those comments, saying that the nuclear deal with Iran was quote essential for peace, and that his country would quote not close any door to dialogue with North Korea. He also criticized Trump's failure to discuss climate change at all in his address despite having recently announced that the U.S. would be pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, speaking of agreements that took years and years to strike, Macron said the planet will not negotiate with us. If the U.S. is forced to defend itself or its allies, uh, Trump said we will have no choice but to, quote, totally destroy North Korea. That's what he said in his address to the General Assembly denouncing North Korea and its leader Kim Jong-un. If the righteous many don't confront the wicked few, said Trump, then evil will triumph. The scourge of our planet today is a small group of rogue regimes that violate every principle on which the United Nations is based. The United States has great strength and patience. 
But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able. But hopefully, this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. That's what the United Nations is for. Let's see how they do. It is time for North Korea to realize that the denuclearization is its only acceptable future. It is time for all nations to work together to isolate the Kim regime until it ceases its hostile behavior. That was Donald Trump at the U.N. General Assembly in his first address to that group on Tuesday, referring to the uh, leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, as Rocket Man, as if he was tweeting. Unbelievable. As if he was in a, uh, a MAGA rally, Make America Great Again rally, I guess. Uh, Trump thanked Russia and China for supporting recent U.N. sanctions on North Korea. But he also took an indirect swipe at them for continuing to do business with Kim and uh, and the North Koreans. We will have more to say on uh, North Korea, I hope, a little bit later in the week. Um, but uh, clearly the threats against North Korea have, have rattled that isolated Asian uh, nation. North Korea's state-run news agency responded to Trump's threat at the U.N. this way on Tuesday with the uh, DPRK News Service tweeting, Impotent threats by international shouting magnate Donald Trump are dismissed as the twitchings of a dog licking its flea-riddled scrotum. Oh, my goodness. So things are really going well in international affairs now that Donald Trump is, uh, is has the is reins making here America in the great US. again? Yes, making the globe great again. Uh, meanwhile, uh, though, in case you thought that we might have worked out a deal for peace with Iran, think again. After condemning North Korea, Trump pivoted to the next, quote, rogue nation, Iran. He called into uh, he called the Iran nuclear deal, quote, an embarrassment. That is, quote, one of the worst and most one sided transactions the U.S. has ever ever entered into. Now, it's not necessarily one-sided. In fact, there are seven uh, parties to this treaty. Trump's uh, alleged concerns over the uh, Joint Plan of Action with Iran, or the JPOA, uh, that's the deal that stopped the possibility of Iran working on a nuclear weapon, at least not without the uh, very good likelihood of them getting caught doing so. It's a deal between Iran and six other countries, U.S., Russia, China, Germany, France, UK. It was struck after years of negotiation, finalized during the Obama administration. And, um, and also just want to note that it was negotiated by our nuclear experts, our Department of Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, who is a world famous Nobel Prize winning nuclear physicist. So these are people who knew what they were doing when they negotiated the Iran deal. Here was Donald Trump uh, at the U.N. General Assembly speaking about Iran on Tuesday. It is far past time for the nations of the world to confront another reckless regime, one that speaks openly of mass murder vowing death to America, destruction to Israel, 
and ruin for many leaders and nations in this room. The Iranian government masks a corrupt dictatorship behind the false guise of a democracy. It has turned a wealthy country with a rich history and culture into an economically depleted rogue state whose chief exports are violence, bloodshed, and chaos. The longest suffering victims of Iran's leaders are, in fact, its own people. We cannot let a murderous regime continue these destabilizing activities while building dangerous missiles, and we cannot abide by an agreement if it provides cover for the eventual construction of a nuclear program. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States, and I don't think you've heard the last of it. Believe me. Oh, we believe you. Uh, that was uh, Donald Trump again today at the uh, at the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, responding to that was uh, Ben Rhodes, former Obama foreign policy advisor, says Trump at the U.N. totally alienating the U.S. from our allies and taking positions that will have no global support. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Emmanuel Macron, a president of France, uh, who has been very friendly with Trump and uh, Trump has said he likes him very much in return. He took sharp, sharp exception to Trump's remarks on the Iran nuclear deal in uh, in particular at the General Assembly. He challenged Trump's dismissal of the Iran nuclear agreement, defending it as solid, robust and verifiable. That's a quote from Macron. The French leader said that renouncing the deal with Iran would be a, quote, grave error, calling the agreement, quote, essential for peace. Maybe that's one of the reasons Trump's not crazy about it. Britain, China, Germany and Russia also hold that view that could isolate the U.S. should Trump carry out his threat to quit the Iran accord. So far, he has not been able to come up with a good explanation, a good reason, a good excuse for doing so, despite you know damn well they are looking, they are trying, they are hoping. Oh, yeah. They want to decertify this thing if they can find any violation whatsoever. Uh, that said, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani would uh, not uh, said that uh, leaving that agreement would not be in the best interest of the U.S., speaking to NBC's Lester Holtz, Rouhani, was asked about the comment, uh, about his comment, that the U.S. would, quote, pay a high price for pulling out of the JPOA agreement with Iran, Britain, Russia, China, Germany, and France. Here's how that went. You made headlines yesterday by saying the United States will pay a high price if it withdraws from the nuclear agreement. Some might hear a threat in those words. Do you care to clarify what you mean by a high price? In a multilateral agreement, which has received the support of the United Nations Security Council, and the core of it is a non-proliferation matter, the exiting of the United States from such an agreement would carry a high cost, meaning 
that subsequent to such a probable action by the United States of America, no one will trust America again. And there is no higher price to be paid than this, because after such a possible scenario, which country would be willing to sit across the table from the United States of America and talk about international issues? Because the JCPOA was obtained after over two years of negotiations and dialogues, dialogues that included sessions over every single word contained in that agreement. Every word was analyzed many times by countries involved before its ratification. So if the United States were to not adhere to the commitments and trample upon this agreement, this will mean that it will carry with it the lack of subsequent trust from countries towards the United States because the greatest capital that any country has is trust and credibility. Yeah, I'm afraid we don't have much credibility or trust uh, for the U.S. anymore at this point. The sad part is that we have to go to the leader of Iran to mm -hmm. get uh, sort of cogent, sane foreign policy advice. And also remember... If the U.S. reneges on the Paris Climate Agreement, no one will trust the United States anymore when it comes to negotiating or even keeping holding to international agreements. I think that's sort of been a, uh, a repeated message at the, yeah. uh, at the at the U.N. in uh, in recent hours and days. All right. Well, uh, with the uh, switching uh, topics here for the moment, uh, with the Republican Senate's new scheme to repeal and replace Obamacare that I mentioned, the effort that if it is to happen, must happen within the next two weeks according to Senate rules, federal subsidies for premium payments and for expanded Medicaid coverage would be replaced with limited per capita block grants to states to do with as they please. Most states will get massive cuts to federal health care dollars in the bargain if this bill is passed. But Republicans, they always enjoy saying that it is the states that know their people best. They know their medical needs the best. They, the states, not Washington, know how to spend taxpayer dollars more efficiently. And that the states need the flexibility to spend those health care dollars as they best understand the needs for their residents. Well, that uh, that's the argument, of course. And once again, in uh, support of the GOP repeal and replace scheme, that's what you're hearing from Republicans. But you will be shocked to know some Republican lawmakers don't actually mean it. What? Yes. Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana is reportedly uh, eyeing a ban on state-run single-payer health care systems in the new GOP Obamacare repeal bill. He said, I think single-payer system is a bad idea. He said, I think if you give a big chunk of money to California, they're going to go set up a single-payer system run by the state and then come back and say, we don't have enough money. We need more. I think the only way we're going to solve the health care problem in America, he says, is through the private sector. Kennedy says he has submitted amendments to the Graham-Cassidy-Heller-Johnson bill in order to bar states from using the block grants to create single-payer systems. So the states know their know their people best uh, unless they want to do something that Republicans don't want them to do, apparently. Kennedy said, I don't think states should have the authority to take money from the American taxpayer and set up a single-payer system. Some people think that's inconsistent with the idea of flexibility, but that's what the U.S. Congress is for. He said, it's our job to make sure that money is properly spent. Well, then, why don't 
you decide how it's spent, as we do currently with the Affordable Care Act, and then you wouldn't have this problem. Trying to have it both ways much? Kennedy confirmed to the Hill today that he's offering uh, uh, that uh, amendment, that ban on single-payer Medicare for All-style systems as one of four amendments to the Graham-Cassidy legislation. His push for barring state single-payer systems, Medicare for All-type systems, comes as Democrats in Congress, at least some of them, embrace Bernie Sanders, independent senator from Vermont, and his Medicare for All legislation, which the lawmaker introduced last week. So is that a good or bad idea for Democrats to pick their own new fight, and certainly one fraught with uh, various uh, peril, political and otherwise, uh, on health care, even as Republicans are still trying to dismantle Obamacare. We will discuss that question and many others next, right here on the Bradcast with TPM's John Judas. Stay tuned. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Republicans' last-ditch effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act before the clock runs out on their ability to do it with a simple majority, does not yet have a score by the Congressional Budget Office. It does not have the enthusiastic support of GOP leadership. And most importantly, writes our friend Alice Olstein over at Talking Points Memo, it does not have 50 votes, at least at this very moment. But the same health advocacy groups that mobilized in opposition to Obamacare repeal bills this spring are treating the prospect that the new Republican bill could come to the floor in the next two weeks as an emergency, blasting out press releases and urging their networks to once again pack GOP town halls and tie up co Congress's phone lines until the bill is dead for good, writes Olstein. With an eye on the September 30 deadline set by the Senate parliamentarian for passing a repeal and replace bill with only 50 senators instead of the usual 60, Senate Republicans are furiously whipping votes today for the Graham-Cassidy-Heller-Johnson bill, as they call it, which would repeal many of Obamacare's taxes, mandates, and subsidies while converting Medicaid and the ACA exchanges into block grants controlled by each individual state. Sound familiar? States would be able to use the funding, which would be uh, cut deeply over the next decade, to redesign their own health insurance markets and could also waive Obamacare's protections for people with pre-existing conditions if they so choose. In other words, another effort, not unlike the previous Republican efforts, to gut the central protections and subsidies of the Obamacare exchanges and its Medicaid expansion. 
It may be a last-ditch effort, but it has the names of some pretty powerful Republicans on board, as well as the co-sponsorship uh, of folks like Nevada's Dean Heller, who had voted against several of the previous Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare. Olstein goes on to note that depending on whom you believe on Capitol Hill, the bill has between 45 and 49 votes right now. Crucially, Senator John McCain of Arizona, who dramatically helped to tank the Senate's last Obamacare repeal effort, is a tentative yes, she reports. But conservative groups are messaging against the bill, and several Republican senators remain anywhere from skeptical to openly hostile to the plan. While many Democrats in Congress have their attention elsewhere right now, several have said openly that they will remain on high alert until the September 30 deadline for the 50-vote Obamacare repeal until that uh, deadline has passed. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon said that it's time to mobilize again, folks. People power can stop this, he said last week. So here we maybe go. Again, with all of that over the next two weeks, in the meantime, perhaps in response to all of these efforts to kill the Democrats' hard-fought landmark reform in, uh, in the U.S. health care insurance system under Obama, or perhaps in response to last year's contentious primary and general presidential election, Democrats in both the U.S. House and Senate have now introduced single-payer, Medicare for all bills in both of those chambers. Congressman John Conyers has been introducing such bills in the House for some years, but this is the first time his legislation has now gained the sponsorship of more than half of the Democratic caucus in the chamber. In the U.S. Senate last week, independent Senator Bernie Sanders introduced his own Medicare for all bill, which was introduced along with the support of a whole bunch of key U.S. senators, some 16 of them, in fact, including a whole bunch of them who uh, thought to be potential contenders for the 2020 presidential nomination from uh, Massachusetts' Elizabeth Warren to New Jersey's Cory Booker to New York's Chris, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand to even Minnesota's Al Franken and many others. Of course, for the moment, with the White House and both chambers of Congress firmly in control of Republicans and Democratic leadership in both houses, notably not yet anyway, on board with the bills, the efforts chances are largely aspirational for the moment. Nonetheless, observes TPM's John Judas, the aspiration, uh, the aspirational effort is probably a good thing for Democrats as we head into another election year in 2018. Here to discuss why that is, is John Judas. He's a journalist, author, he's editor-at-large for TalkingPointsMemo.com. He formerly worked at the New Republic for about 25 years, and his articles have appeared in the American Prospect, New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, Washington Monthly, and many others. He's also the author of uh, seven books, if I've got the accounting right. His latest, published last October, was presciently titled The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics. John Judas, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Oh, well, glad to be with you. Always good to have you. John, I, I wanted to talk about... I want to talk about some of the reasons why House Democratic leadership and others from the liberal spectrum, uh, including yourself to some degree, as I understand it, are anything but 
thrilled in in a, in one sense by this democratic uh, move toward a single payer. But you recently wrote at the uh, TPM editor's blog about why you feel that Sanders' effort here is a step forward for the Democratic Party. Uh, even with the virtual impossibility of this effort at the moment becoming law under this president, certainly under this Republican-controlled Congress. So uh, why, in general, is this? Uh, do you see this as a, a step forward for Democrats? Well, I, I want to step back myself and say something else about mm-hmm. the bill, which is that um, I, I've uh, always been a supporter of uh, some form of single-payer. You, you can have Switzerland or... There are there are a lot of different systems mm-hmm. that put uh, that that put really um, health care as a public right, and um, th- to me this has always seemed like a good thing. And I'm talking personally, mm-hmm. and uh, to the extent that it's, it seemed like a good thing in the past, it's been magnified by uh, some terrible experiences I've had with uh, private insurance companies. $20,000 bills and, you know, really crazy stuff that, you know, I'm sorry to say, is not uh, unique to me. Um, Health care is something that really should not be in the hands of private corporations. Nonprofit, perhaps? Again, Switzerland has a system which regulated where this, the, we're talking about nonprofit corporations. Mm-hmm. Pri- private corporations that uh, deal with um, with health care in order to make a profit for their stockholders um, to raise the income of their uh, executives no absolutely not and I think a lot of Americans are coming to feel that way um, and I think you know in fact I think they we've felt this way since 1948 uh, it's it's a long-standing issue in America mm-hmm. and when Democrats uh, in the absence of any system have bring brought forth the idea of um, pu- public uh, universal health insurance in 1992, Bill Clinton, in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, Barack Obama. It's been very popular, and it's won them elections. But what happens is that when you get into the actual practice, when you try to pass the bill and design the bill and deal with all the opponents, you get into an incredible tangle, and uh, as a result... The kind of um, default American uh, dissatisfaction with higher taxes, big government, come to the fore, and the Democrats get in trouble. So, uh, anyway, that, that's a long answer to, uh, to to your question. Well, that's okay, actually, because I wanted to ask you about that side as well, and and then we'll go back to why this uh, <laughs> this is a good thing for Democrats, because you do uh, describe this as politically dangerous. And yet, as you allude to there, John, uh, public polling for some time has found that, uh, well, the the public does not like private insurance companies. The public has found, uh, at least in these polls, that uh, both Medicare is very popular and more to the point here, an idea, uh, the idea of a single payer system, a Medicare for all system that does seem to poll well among the American people. At large, not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans as well. So why is this so politically dangerous in that case? Well, uh, you can look at what happened in Colorado uh, in November uh, 2016. They had a, a uh, initi- state initiative for single payer. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was designed pretty well. Mm-hmm. It would have raised taxes, but the uh, argument was that in the end, uh, uh, Coloradans would be paying le- less uh, of their money to health care 
for right. health care. So mm-hmm. it would actually save them money. But, you know, that might be over 10 years or something like that. And they had a lot of trouble politically. And uh, the main Democrats in the state, the governor did not endorse it. And it lost 80% to 20%. It just got killed. So, again, wh- what I'm saying is that when you get into the specifics, uh, it's dangerous. Mm. Now, Colorado, Vermont, which tried to do this, it, it's harder to make the case uh, for a state doing this, and it's easier for you to make the case nationally, especially when we have already, uh, in effect, a single-payer system, Medicare. Right. And that's why the Sanders thing uh, really does have a chance, I'm not saying of passing, but of being politically mobilizing and of bringing out the dissatisfaction that a lot of people feel with the private insurance and with the, with the idea that vital services uh, should not be subject to the prerogatives of private companies. So I think that's a big deal. It, it, it relates to education, health care. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, it gives the Democrats also a, a visionary aspect that they've just lacked for 20, 30, long time. Mm. Uh, uh, and I think that's very important. You know, I'm not for imposing litmus tests that every Democrat who runs for office has to uh, endorse X, Y, and Z, because uh, there's different districts, different states. But but uh, as a party, the, the Democrats have been bereft of a kind of visionary component. Mm-hmm. They've been like uh, they used to say of George H.W. Bush, in uh, 1988, lacking vision, mm. the vision thing, he used to call it. Right. Uh, so I think that, that the ideas behind a single-payer system began to move the Democrats in that kind of direction. The, uh, you, you describe in your piece that effective politics needs a horizon that voters look toward. I've been saying for years that Democrats need to let voters know what uh, what they are for. They have to give voters something to vote for rather than just something to vote against. In other words, what will they get if they give control to uh, if voters give control to, to Democrats as opposed to, you know, simply telling them what Democrats are here to stop? Are, are you essentially saying the same thing that the Democratic Party needs uh, I guess you say something to rally behind, but an, an affirmative action that that makes a difference at the poll. Am I right about that? That people tend to vote for things rather than against things. Am I right on that? Well, they they can vote against big things, like they could vote against uh, dr- drug companies and insurance companies, mm-hmm. or they can vote against a war that's going on, like the Iraq War. But but that's that's in effect something uh, same thing as voting for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go back to what the Republicans did and the, and how the uh, Republican Party itself revived. I mean, this was a party that was pretty much out of power since 1932. And then you get, in the late 1970s, this peculiar idea of cutting taxes. The, the Republicans were always a balanced budget party. Mm-hmm. Uh, throw the widows out in the snow if necessary. And Kemp Ross plan cuts the taxes by 33% across the board, cut tax rates. Um, denounced at the beginning, the same kind of thing with the Congressional Budget Office, uh, green eye shade kind of outlook on things that the Sanders stuff is getting. It's impossible. It won't work. It's not popular. And I'm not endorsing it, obviously. We're talking about the politics. We're mm-hmm. not talking about the substance here. 
uh, it gives the, the Republicans a whole new idea of what they're doing. Uh, they're going to become the party of growth. They're not going to become the party of austerity. And, you know, that's Ronald Reagan, and that's how the Republicans have stayed in power for a lot of the last uh, 30 or 40 years. So the Democrats, in turn, have been cast on the other side, and to some extent, uh, uh, as the party of austerity of, uh, of particular groups, uh, and we don't have the kind of uh, idea anymore that we're offering something to the average American that, do, that, that he or she does not have, and that we ourselves endorse, uh, again, this... Uh, a component of a vision horizon to look beyond the vision so, thing. Yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why I think it's a good idea. Would you? But again, it's, yeah. for me, it's all personal as well. I don't. I, I, you know, I think. I think it would be good for Americans to have this plan, irrespective of, for the moment of whether it's uh, politically feasible. Well, um, yeah, on a politi- on, on a personal level, John, I I think that's an important uh, case because I think there's a lot of people who are feeling uh, the same way you are, above and beyond what party they're in, just independently. And you know, you had even on the uh, on the Republican side. Remember, you had uh, Donald Trump at least pretending that he was in favor of better, you know, health care for everyone, universal coverage at a cheaper price. A lot of people, whether they were right to believe him or not, that he actually believed in that, a lot of people did believe that. They heard that message, they believed yes, in it, and right. seemed effective. The, the, the debate has shifted in the country, and that's why the Republicans have had so much trouble repealing Obamacare. Would you say that the uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, his his infamous contract for America, remember that, uh, spelling out exactly sure. what Republicans would do if they were given control of, of the House back in, uh, I guess, in 1994, uh, setting aside how objectionable those things were that he was calling for, or their, you know, the Republican ability to actually do it with a, a Democrat uh, Bill Clinton in the White House, is that an example of the horizontal politics, as you describe it, that... Uh, Democrats ought to be engaging in themselves here? Well, that's a way of putting it forward. I mean, Roosevelt put it forward. You can put it forward with campaign speeches, uh, programs. Um, there's, there's, whole, there's a lot of different ways. Bill Clinton in 1992 ran a terrific campaign. Um, putting people first was the, uh, was the motto. Mm-hmm. Um, George, D- George W. Bush in Compassionate Conservative. You don't have to have put out a book with a lot of different uh, programs involved. So I and I'm not a political consultant, so I'm not I can't advise people uh, you know how to do it or what mm-hmm. the best way is. Uh, but, but again, it's a it, politics is thematic. It's not people aren't looking for uh, the you know the nuts and bolts. They don't want to have to read through a, a 50-page uh, mm-hmm. program to figure out what you know what you're going to do with health care. It, it, is, it is something that uh, where the public wants to know that, you know, this, these people are on our side. They want to do something for us. And uh, Democrats have failed to convey that to a lar- large part of the population, and that's why they've had trouble. You also charge that the Democratic Party has been mired in think tank incrementalism, and I think you're sort of uh, referring to what became of Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign last year, and identity politics. I want to ask you about both. Uh, first, what do you mean by think, uh, think tank incrementalism? Well, I, I, what I'm thinking of really is the kind of reception that uh, 
Sanders got from the uh, pundits and from the think tanks and stuff like that. And, and again, what the charges that uh, Hillary Clinton made against his, his politics, mm-hmm. um, which was that, you know, if you looked at the a Congressional Budget Office report, it wouldn't do X, Y, and Z, and it wasn't going to be feasible because the Republicans were going to uh, control Congress. And you really lose sight of, again, uh, the responsibility of a party to put forward what what people might want and not just what you could achieve in Congress over the next month or year or two years. So I, I think that's what I was talking about with the think tank in- incrementalism. The uh, the vision thing again uh, as to identity uh, identity politics. Uh, this is a phrase that's been used a lot of late among Democrats. There is a very real split down the middle of the Democratic Party and the the progressive side of the spectrum still, uh, following the Democratic hard fought Democratic primary between Clinton and and Sanders, obviously last year, uh, and and much of it is not being. Uh, really reported uh, or, or, or discussed publicly in the mainstream corporate media, of course, among all the Trump madness. So what do you regard? What do you describe as identity politics here? And I guess my question whenever this comes up is, isn't it possible that the Democratic Party can stand for both uh, the, the vision thing, the horizontal uh, policy, as well as standing up for uh, you know the rights of individuals. Well, yeah. What 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 I'm referring to is um, the the major strategy that the Clinton people adopted uh, uh-huh. in uh, sometime in the spring of 2016, um, and, and it was based on a um, what I think is a mistaken interpretation of what Rui Teixeira and I wrote in the uh, emerging democratic majority, though Rui and I now disagree about this somewhat, mm. somewhat as well, which is the idea that you could somehow add up these different constituencies, the so-called people of color, which are what, uh, Asians, uh, mm. Hispanics, African Americans, uh, single women, millennials, and you get a majority of like 51.5%. So if you get, you know, if you can somehow appeal to all these groups, uh, you can win an election. And that the result of that is a kind of uh, a politics based on these kind of discrete, uh, di- differentiated appeals. Mm. Remember Clinton in the uh, in the convention, the whole thing about the glass ceiling, um, mm-hmm. as the ma- you know that was this major scene uh, to appeal to women and particular would be professional women um, that she was going to break the gla- through the glass ceiling. If you remember Obama's campaign, he never talked about, you know, I'm going to be the first African-American. That was not, though people, you know, obviously mm. understood that. Uh, it was not a central way in which he tried explicitly to appeal to people. So, the, you know, the Clinton, if you looked at the web page, it was all differentiated into these, into these groups. Mm. And, you know, one thing, it, the result of that is that the groups that are left out say, well, what about me kind of reaction you get. Right. And if you look at Trump's appeal, it was appealing to the what about me people. 
Yeah, because so, there you go. Well, because he certainly played identity politics in that regard. Uh, you know, appealing to white male identity politics. It 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 seems. But I'm I'm happy to hear. So it's not so much the the policy itself, the fighting for the rights of these various groups. It's just the matter of, as you suggest, putting it forward above and beyond pretty much all else and beyond a, yes, a single yes, unifying absolutely. theme. It has to be framed. Yeah. In other words, and it has to be framed as an appeal to you know Roosevelt talked about the average American. Uh, the winning campaigns in America are in general. Uh, based upon an appeal to the kind of great middle class, the average American, um, what the people, who constitutes this changes from election to election, but there it is. And and, uh, Trump himself appealed to what he called the silent majority. Um, And that kind of thematic politics uh, takes precedence over appeal to particular groups. You can still uh, uh, you can still campaign uh, for racial justice. You can still have a position on immigration, but again, that can't they can't be above the general thematic appeal that you're making to the the electorate. Or or you know again you get into mm-hmm. this thing of people feeling left out and is this really about me and exactly mm-hmm. what happened in. Uh, 2016. All right, last question before I let you go, John Judas. Uh, I I don't know if uh, Democrats are currently taking the threat of this new Graham, Cassidy, Heller, Johnson bill uh, seriously enough. I think that Republicans, uh, frankly, will do anything to be able to say that they passed their repeal and replace bill, no matter how good it is, no matter how bad it is. Uh, so uh, any thoughts on its uh, possibility of moving forward? But the, the bigger question here, uh, how, how, does this, uh, how does this help or hurt the, uh, the Medicare for all idea politically, uh, no matter what happens with this particular bill? Well, um, you know, I, again, I don't follow Congress that way. I'm, I sit at home uh, outside the Beltway, so mm-hmm. I'm not the person to tell you what the prospects are. Uh, the, the things I'll say about it is, first of all, it's just, a, it's just a disaster, and it's an awful thing for the country if this thing passes. I, I think it's worse, probably, than the previous bills in terms of uh, uh, cutting people out of the mm-hmm. system, uh, allowing uh, pre-exist, uh, char- increased charges for pre-existing conditions, mm-hmm. and increased charges mean that basically a lot of people won't be able to buy insurance. Right. So I, I think it's worse, and it'll be a terrible thing. And Obamacare, for all its flaws, is much, much, much better. So I, I hope it, uh, I, I hope it fails like the past efforts. Second thing is that if it does uh, succeed, it'll hurt the Republicans, in my opinion, and uh, it'll be a campaign issue for the Democrats, and uh, it'll open the way again to the debate about what kind of national health insurance system we should have. But you know. That I, w- I would happily sacrifice that political gain uh, not to have uh, this kind of awful program inflicted on the American people. It does seem to, uh, th- the more they talk about killing it, the more we hear talk about, uh, you know, a single payer. That sort of 
uh, puts uh, health care for everyone on the table and beyond, uh, you know, the, the, the partisan squabbles. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Medicare for all would be even more politically uh, charged. Um, well, you should look at uh, what happened in Australia. I've written yep. about that several times. We, last time they, you were on, you talked about that. The Australian example, that's where we had you on last time. Uh, that, oh, is that right? Yeah, because yeah. they repealed it. Right. And then uh, that laid the basis for a, a single-payer system, the kind of thing that very similar to what Sanders is proposing. It's even called uh, Medicare. Well, Republicans should be uh, careful uh, what they wish for, I guess, as they move forward in this. John Judas, always great to talk to you, sir. Uh, you are always very wise and very smart, and uh, your thoughts are always greatly appreciated. Check out John's work, of course, at TalkingPointsMemo.com. Follow him and harangue him all you like on the Twitters at John B. Judas. John, uh, thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with uh, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, a very busy one, and some updates uh, on, uh, on Hurricane Maria and another deadly earthquake in Mexico. That's Straight Ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Man, I, I wish I could stop the world right now. The, Tell me the about pace it. of the breaking news in world affairs, in uh, in the climate, is it's impossible to keep up with. Just impossible. But, but we let's, try. We try. Let's get to it. Our latest attempt in our latest Green News Report. Residents bracing across the Caribbean. Puerto Rico boarding up. The second major hurricane bearing down on the island in less than two weeks. Caribbean islands bracing for impact again, this time from Hurricane Maria with more storms in the wings. Well, we've had bigger storms than this. Actually, we haven't. Trump's still in denial about the climate link to extreme weather. Interior Secretary recommends 10 national monuments for modification. Plus, it is mankind and his activities which are changing the environment of our planet. As the United Nations gathers in New York, it's the 30th anniversary of the first global climate treaty. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The big news is Mother Earth's quest to murder us all. That is big news. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I hate to say it again, but um, here we go again. 
Yeah, unfortunately, as we go to air, Hurricane Maria rapidly intensified and slammed into the island of Dominica in the eastern Caribbean on Monday as a powerful Category 5 storm, according to the National Hurricane Center. Fueled by unusually warm ocean waters in the Atlantic, Maria poses an extremely dangerous threat to Puerto Rico and the same Caribbean islands that were devastated by Hurricane Irma just days ago. Now, with the added concern that debris left behind by Irma could become dangerous projectiles. This is very scary. And they're still searching for food and water and fuel. Yep. Hurricane season isn't over until November, and there are numerous storms spinning in both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans with plenty of ocean heat energy to propel them. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, predicted that 2017 would be an unusually active hurricane season. Nailed it. And yeah, they were right. But even two record storms hitting the United States in less than two weeks has had no impact on U.S. President Donald Trump, who told reporters aboard Air Force One that despite the warnings of climate scientists, he still sees no link between global warming and more intense hurricanes. Well, we've had bigger storms than this. And if you go back into the 1930s and the 1940s, if you go back into the teens, you'll see storms that were as big or bigger. And no, that's just not true. Depending upon which metric you use to measure it, doesn't matter. Only one or two storms could be considered possibly bigger than Irma. And Trump also told reporters he never knew there was such a thing as a Category 5 hurricane. Swell. But he seems to know with certainty there's no climate change to worry about. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has published a leaked report by Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke recommending which national monuments established by previous presidents that Trump should modify, an unprecedented and potentially illegal attack on protected public lands that are coveted by the fossil fuel and mining industries. Zinke recommends shrinking 10 national monuments, including Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante in Utah, and he suggests allowing more extraction within the monument's boundaries, what Zinke calls traditional uses like commercial logging, commercial fishing, coal mining, and fossil fuel drilling. Native American tribes, conservation and environmental groups have vowed to sue to stop any attempts to modify the monuments. The Trump EPA is also rolling back two regulations limiting water pollution caused by the coal industry, a rule to limit the amount of toxic wastewater that coal plants can dump into your lakes and rivers, and the EPA will rewrite regulations protecting groundwater from coal ash waste that environmental groups have called, quote, a ploy to scrap the protections entirely. So when you say rewrite the laws to protect the groundwater, they're rewriting them to do away with the protection altogether. Exactly. As world leaders gather for the United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York City this week, Trump still intends to withdraw the United States from the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement, the historic international accord signed by all nations to cut the greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous climate change. The New Republic reports that other nations, led by the European Union, are now considering extracting a cost if the U.S. breaks its pledge to reduce its emissions by potentially slapping carbon tariffs or a border adjustment tax on U.S. imports and exports. Finally, this past Sunday marked the 30th anniversary of the day the world's governments signed the Montreal Protocol, agreeing to end the use of chemicals that were destroying our planet's fragile, protective ozone layer. It was humanity's first global climate treaty, 
and it is succeeding in repairing the ozone layer. Imagine that. When the whole world comes together and makes a goal to try to save the planet, it actually works. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Uh, thank you very much, Des. Uh, and there was a, a portion of uh, Margaret Thatcher's speech that I wanted to play in the Green News Report we didn't have time to from 30 years ago. We'll, we'll try to get to that later this week uh, because there was also on uh, Tuesday another huge quake in uh, in Mexico. This is the second to strike in, uh, I think, the past week and about a week, uh, plus about four hurricanes in Mexico. Normal administrations, I guess, we would be offering a whole lot of help uh, to our neighbors to the south. I don't know that uh, Donald Trump has yet said anything about either of those quakes in Mexico. Not as far as I can tell. In any event, the latest quake on Tuesday was huge, apparently a 7.1 magnitude quake. Uh, Yeah, it rocked central Mexico today, collapsing buildings. At least 60 are dead right now. I expect that total to continue climbing, unfortunately. In the meantime, uh, we were discussing Hurricane Maria there in our GNR. Uh, Roosevelt Skerritt, the prime minister of the Commonwealth of Dominica, uh, was actually live tweeting or at least live Facebooking the uh, hurricane as it was coming over that island nation on Monday night. Uh, It was kind of harrowing to follow. Uh, He said, the winds are merciless. We shall survive by the grace of God. A little bit later, we do not know what is happening outside. We We do not dare look out. All we are hearing is the sound of galvanized flying, the sound of the fury of the wind. A little bit later, my roof is gone. I am at the complete mercy of the hurricane. House is flooding. A little bit later, simply, I have been rescued. Wow. And then a little bit later, um, initial reports of widespread devastation. He writes, so far we have lost all what money can buy and replace. I'm honestly not preoccupied with physical damage at this time because it is devastating, indeed mind-boggling, he called it. He said, my focus now is in rescuing the trapped and securing medical assistance for the injured. We will need help, my friend. We will need help of all kinds. Maria is back to a Category 5 at this time, heading towards the U.S. Virgin Islands and uh, Puerto Rico. And so all of our best to all of those people in harm's way at this hour. Yes. We'll continue to follow that in as well in the days ahead. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, John Judas of TalkingPointsMemo.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We are uh, greatly honored. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. My great thanks to those of you who help continue, uh, help us continue what we try to do every day over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. 
And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>